Welcome to the Diversity and Inclusion on Air podcast. This podcast is a program of the Association of American Veterinary Medical Colleges Diversity Matters Initiative. The podcast explores various issues related to diversity and inclusion in the veterinary profession and provides the AAVMC an opportunity to offer ongoing diversity programming to our member institutions as well as all veterinary professionals. My name is Dr. Lisa Greenhill and I'm the Senior Director for Institutional Research and Diversity at the AAVMC. On today's show, we're going to talk about creating institutional policies that drive change around diversity, equity, and inclusion. Now, I have answered literally thousands of questions over my career about what institutions can do to plan, implement, and assess diversity programming in academic veterinary medicine. But folks fail to really ask often how policymaking at the systems level can drive change. So I routinely ask my members at AAVMC what they would like to see covered on the show. And recently, institutional policymaking was the thing that they most wanted to hear about. So here we are. I am delighted to welcome my guest, Dr. Marco Barker, the inaugural vice chancellor for diversity and inclusion at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln which happens to be an AAVMC affiliate member. Marco and I met a couple years ago when we were both on a program at NAVC in Orlando, Florida. So welcome to the show. I am so glad to be here, Lisa. So good to see you again. Great to see you too. And yes, I am going to throw shade to all of you wonderful veterinary folks who attended NAVC and did not come to our session last year. Oh no. Oh yes, that's right. (laughs) You missed the treat. You missed the treat. (laughs) It became a wonderfully intimate, like small group kind of workshop that really, I think was very impactful for the people who did come. Shade to all of you people that didn't come. You missed the treat. Anyway, so as is our custom on the show, I actually have my guests tell us a little bit about themselves and self introduce so marco the floor is yours absolutely well certainly hello um to all of the listeners today again thank you lisa for inviting me to be a part of today's conversation so again i'm marco barker vice chancellor for diversity and inclusion at the university of nebraska lincoln also an associate professor of practice in the department of educational administration this is my second land-grant institution and so i started my diversity career at louisiana state university and was there for a number of years, earned my PhD from LSU in education leadership and research with a focus in higher education. My research does cover cross-race interaction. So I think that's part of why, too, that is important for me to do this work. I had a career also, um, a stint at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill at Westminster College in Salt Lake City, Utah, so a small private liberal arts college. And that's where I was the chief diversity officer and, and associate vice president for diversity, equity, and inclusion. My my education training has certainly had a number of pathways. And so I earned my Bachelor of Science in Industrial Engineering from the University of Arkansas. And then I worked in corporate for, for quite some time and then earned my MBA in the University in St. Louis and then my PhD. So I've had a number of career changes. And so I've been doing diversity work in higher education, particularly for over 13 years now. And I'm now at UNL, a brand new office. And so this notion about policy making is something that is top of mind for us, um, especially in this climate. So again, so happy to be here and and looking forward to our conversation. Wonderful. Yes, yes. I, like you, my career also took like winding paths with like, oh, let me collect a degree here and collect a degree. It happens. (laughs) It happens. happens. So I always tell students, don't feel like you have to go all the way through straight. Like you can, you can take the scenic route. It's all good. (laughs) Absolutely. So, Marco, when we talk about creating policies that promote diversity, equity and inclusion, what are some of the ways that we can kind of define success? You know, when some colleges are just getting, you know, to that place where writing it down, writing down that we are pro diversity, equity and inclusion, check the box. Yeah, we're we're success. Yeah. Uh, that's you know the big s word right like success and we want it and we want it now and we we want this really clear demarcation of like we've done this right you know and maybe this is from my own engineering experience like i really embrace a continuous improvement model so i think it's okay Mm -hmm. to be able to say that we don't have success yet 
and that we're just starting. This is an ongoing process. And so I think this sort of like reframing that you have to have the, the magic list, all the goals articulated that we've been able to do this. And so especially if you're just starting, right? So there, may be, yeah. there, there could be a number of colleges just starting. And so I think that, um, so for me, it's always first identifying that sometimes yeah, you are just having the conversation um, and being honest about that and being careful as I sort of like to um, exercise of this sort of like early success that we should just be a little cautious and to be really be able to say that we are right now in the beginning stages and that's where we are. And that's okay too. And being just clear about that. So I think for, you know, definitely for colleges that have started down this pathway and being able to do that, I think identifying what success is for you, right? So people are at different places. There are some people who have clear diversity statements and core values, and they've done that. There are others who maybe they've not. And so I think you have to be really sort of do the self-assessment and see where you're starting. So then that can allow you to be able to articulate more closely, more really um, relevant to your particular mm-hmm. college, like like what, what success is. So, so I think that you got to get a sense like, like where, you know, where are you? Like, are you, are you really starting from scratch again? And that's fine as long as, as long as you're starting. And I think being real about what the progress is going to look like. So if you have mm-hmm. already started like pushing yourself a bit more and having some real clear objectives, but again, none of this can start on Lisa until people sit down and figure out like exactly where are we? Like, we have no idea if you've not combed your data, if you've not done any of that, Success is never going to be as accurate as it could be if you've done that early data assessment. Mm, yeah, data, data, data. data it data. is, it is. You know, and <laughs> sure. I, and I'm a qualitative researcher. I mean, I, I, while I'm an engineer, I'm also a qualitative researcher. So, 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 so data can come in, and I think in a variety of forms. Mm-hmm. But I think going into doing diversity and inclusion work. I think wanting to do it for the sake of the sort of social moral imperative is really important. I think it's, it's so key and at the heart of this work. However, when you start talking about success and start talking about like, how do we reflect on where we were and where we are now, there are some clear data points that can provide a bit more guidance so that you're not diving into this work absolutely unaware of, of where to start or where there are some opportunities. And so, yeah, data, data, data. I'll, I'll, I, I will preach that until, <laughs> until yeah. the channels come home, literally, and really expressing that we have to be able to have that sense of a starting point. Yeah. Yeah. So there's lots of different kinds of, of institutional policies, right? Yeah. That can promote diversity, equity, and inclusion at multiple levels. Yeah. So in your current role and your previous role, what kinds of policies do you feel, you know, are um, really kind of had the type of impact that you were looking to have in those spaces? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, policy is so tricky, right? Because the actual implementation and action of the policy is sort of like it's sort of what makes it have the successful impact that we've hoped with those and so i'll share maybe a few that i think for me have been really instrumental in helping to really guide our institution so policies around um campus climate and how to respond to sort of hostile environments or whether that's work environments Mm -hmm. or learning environments. And so having clear policy, um, I think what's great is that we do have, right, you know, non-discrimination policies and EEO policies and Title VII and all these policies that articulate that discrimination is wrong. Um, And so we have ways and courses of action and those policies outline that. There are behaviors that often stem outside of discrimination, right? So the federal policies have such a legal guidance to them that oftentimes things either fall within it or outside of that. And so policies that capture those things that fall outside of outside of discrimination policies, I've seen be really helpful. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, institutions risk making their own interpretations about how to respond to hostile environments. And so those policies have been really successful that it gives institutions or colleges or departments some way of guiding their response in a very consistent way of how to do that. So that's sort of one. Um, Another one I would say are trans policies. So policies around supporting trans employees, trans students Mm -hmm. is another one that has a gap in our federal policies, don't necessarily address 
both protections for trans individuals, but also what does it mean in terms of accommodations or making modifications in a way, whether that's our language or actual physical facilities, how people encounter a space, applications, right? So, mm-hmm. um, so having, so I've, I've, I've been a part of campuses that have developed really strong trans policy. So again, it's helping to address gaps in our federal, in our federal policies that don't quite get at what has been an emergence of identities that are entering our workplaces and our classrooms. And so trans policies has been another one that's been really successful. Something the tenure clock has been huge. Um, When I was at LSU, Mm -hmm. our commission was working on developing that policy and they, and they put it into place again, because of data, we were seeing that, um, this idea about men and women or individuals leaving the workplace for their families was really important and how that, and we know that it was disproportionately impacting women in particular in terms of being on the tenure track. And so the stopping the tenure clock policy was established and really had um, really great positive outcomes as it pertains to that. I think, gosh, probably the last one I would say that has been really critical are search committee hiring policies, mm-hmm. right? So again, because of the federal government, we have affirmative action policies and and anyone who receives federal funding is supposed to have an affirmative action plan. And every institution has it. If, you, if you've not seen it, it's probably on a shelf somewhere. It often sits on a shelf um, and people have no idea. And then and there's sort of these misconceptions about what affirmative action is, that it's quotas, and that's not what because quotas are illegal. And so affirmative action p- plans are established to ensure that institutions create a some sort of proactive strategy in terms of attracting underrepresented populations that have been historically underrepresented and historically um, discriminated against to be able to encourage their 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 active participation in search processes so that the hiring process um, is really to, to some degree free from bias right and so these affirmative action plans have a number of strategies that's helpful but again, the gap that has existed is that in the actual implementation of hiring practices, um, search committees, what search committees are discussing, how they're discussing it, how they're thinking about, again, their recruitment. The, the affirmative action plans often are very institutional based. Yeah. They don't necessarily call for departments specific, college-specific actions. And so having a policy around hiring um, is another one that has been really successful. When I was at UNC Chapel Hill, we were working alongside the Office of Equal Opportunity to really develop policy and practices to help departments really adhere to the affirmative action um, strategy, but also develop some clear expectations around here is how the search should, should play out. So so those are, again, just a few, um, Lisa, that yeah. I've seen be really effective for campuses and, again, and really often address gaps in the existing policies. But I think there are a lot of institutions that have really great policies. Again, there are federal policies that are, that are, mm-hmm. that are in place, but they often, again, sit on the shelf or don't go far enough. So again, even with Title IX and how sex is defined and who that includes, sometimes the federal policy doesn't go far enough. Institutions have opportunities to further articulate who is protected by their discrimination policies. And so those are opportunities that I've seen and been part of at some of my my other institutions and building that into the policy framework. Such great examples. You know, so in 2011, I did a a study on campus climate, right, within the U.S. um, veterinary schools. And and one of the things that we found was that our LGBT students were actually, I mean, certainly there were certainly racial issues. (laughs) We expected that. But what we actually found was that one of our most vulnerable population was our LGBT folks and our specific trans population at that time. Right. And I mean, that was what that was almost 10 years ago. I mean, it seems like, right. That was almost 10 years ago. And one of the things, you know, that I think that people also forget about when they're creating some of these policies and thinking about protection is even just physical space, just the importance of physical space. Because one of the things that really kind of came out of that study was, you know, the lack of bathrooms, appropriate bathrooms, right? Just access to just go into the bathroom. People were like, oh, well, why do we have to do this? I'm like, it's just a bathroom. Your bathroom in your house is an all-gender bathroom. Right. <laughs> Whoever goes to the bathroom just goes to the bathroom, right? Yeah. And so, and so, so many of our institutions, particularly land-grant institutions, are old. Yes, buildings are old. They were not actually a lot of them built for women attending. 
them. And so, and so, you know, they had to retrofit that. And so now a lot of our older buildings at land grant institutions have, you know, those side by side, single stall, there's a sign for women, there's a sign for men. Right. And so, so many of our institutions were like, well, we don't have bathrooms that can accommodate everyone. It was like, okay, but there's one right there. You could just take, well, how do we make that, you know, a all gender bathroom? Take down the sign. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Just take down the sign and just put up a sign that says bathroom. Yeah, no, that's really important. Yo, (laughs) you know, we just actually, I I, I failed to mention like we, so we just, gosh, as of three weeks ago, we just created a gender inclusive restroom policy. So we've now instituted a policy that in renovations and new buildings, there's now policy, right? So it was, it, it was a standard practice for us, but however, that standard practice was not documented. We were not clear if, if, if everyone was following that practice in terms of building codes or, or yeah. new construction. And so, yeah, so we actually just, um, for that reason, we just instituted this policy so that it is documented. So I would say to your listeners, that oftentimes we have practices that we're that that we are doing that either came out of a committee or it came as a recommendation and now we sort of do it um, but really sort of push that forward and think about how does this live in perpetuity and so being able to have mm. a policy uh, yeah a policy around here's the expectation that if you're doing renovations or doing new, or, or doing new construction here's what you should be considering in terms of all gender restrooms on particular floors and how many floors and who do you consult so all yeah. of that is now written into the policy and so yeah absolutely i think there mm. and and the same thing i think with both access yes to the physical facilities yeah. but also how people encounter your organization so again yeah. applications and forms and documents yeah. and what's the yeah. expectation anyway so yeah I can talk, I can talk all day about um, about <laughs> that but no you're absolutely right that I think the what has driven policy often again are relates to representation but thinking about that there are some identities that people are protective or don't feel safe in terms of identifying and so sometimes there are voiceless perspectives that yeah. we miss I mean so we don't necessarily are driven to really be thoughtful about policy in that way but yes we have yeah. to absolutely keep in mind that there are people who may not be as vocal yeah. because of a number of reasons that we also have to design policies around too. Absolutely. So I've got a nice hypothetical for you, Marco. Oh my gosh. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So you are working at a brand new small college, blank slate, totally blank slate, which we have a couple of new schools and a new one just rolling on board um, now. So brand new schools, all new. You get to go in and do whatever you want. Where do you start building your DEI program. Okay. And well, we're also you going to assume f- that you have the resources that you need. <laughs> yes. That's, <laughs> let's start there. Making sure that when you are deciding to go into this work, the investment that's being committed to be able to do that. So, you know, I, I, I know that you are working with veterinary colleges and schools of, of a variety yeah. of sizes. As someone who just left a small liberal arts college that was really starting brand new, I'll, I'll sort of relate some of the um, some of these key issues i think um so absolutely that there is a commitment of investment that happens um that has to be established very early on of what support for the office is going to look like once that is in place i i often consult and and advise people that you want to start with a working definition or either core value about how have you communicated or established really established that diversity and inclusion, what it is for your college and how it's a core value for your college, right? So I meet a number of departments and colleges and schools who are like, okay, we are doing this diversity work. Okay, how how is that foundational to your department, to your mm-hmm. college, right? And so, so some colleges start to do this work and don't root it to, to anything in terms of the, the, the core foundation. So I think that's probably one of the very first things that I um, encourage people. Another sort of first step is being able to sort of capacity or structures to help do the work. So if there's any lesson that I will pass on is that this work has to be done by more than one person. Like this is not just one office is not just Lisa Greenhill swooping in to advise (laughs) you that you really want to have a cadre of people who are thinking about this and working through this, that are working in hand in hand and tandem with, if again, if you have a diversity person, I think that's great. I think having an official role 
can be really critical. So, right. So, I, so, I, so I, I, I get the question oftentimes, do you need an associate dean or assistant dean of diversity? Do you need a director of diversity? What I think having someone who is committed to driving this work is really critical, right? So I say driving, not solely leading, but dry, right. helping to drive and push this work is really important that they are part of the leadership team. So again, so this structure mm-hmm. piece really has to be right. Otherwise, yeah. you can not make progress. So um, so having, again, I think having the role um, really ensures that you don't lose sight of it, right? So, so you have someone mm-hmm. constantly beating the drum saying, this is important, this is important. But I think, again, in addition to that, so having some sort of structure, right? So whether it's, if you're a part of a college, maybe it's someone from each of the departments departments, maybe it's a combination of department chairs and faculty and a student, right? And there's a committee. And so there are people who are thinking through this, but I think you have to be able to figure out how are you set up so that this work really does get communicated across the entire college. Um, And that is just so really important. I would say probably in addition to that, having and establishing some sort of communication channel so that people know what's happening. when is it happening? How is it happening? And so you want some sort of communication channel. So I think that can be something that either it is created, right? So some colleges create special newsletters, but if there are already communication channels, whether it's a newsletter or a listserv, or it's the dean's messages, or ensuring that there is a, a spot, a space for mm. diversity and inclusion, and that that is happening so that as there are changes that take place, people are just really informed I will go back to data, 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 that part of establishing these offices is thinking about like where are you getting information? So you so you, sh- you, you should be finding out and taking time to see what the current, whether it's demographics, equity data, so retention, graduation rates, hiring rates, who's leaving, are you, what data do you not have, right? It's also mm-hmm. very telling. If there's been prior work around diversity and inclusion by individuals within your college, talking with those individuals, finding out what work what didn't work are there pre-existing plans like all of these yeah. so, so sort of this data gathering so those are just some of the initial steps that i think that anyone who is thinking about starting this or maybe again you're an, a, a a brand new assistant dean or diversity officer for the college that i think starting with those things in mind can be really important and probably the very last thing i would say is that there absolutely has to be this sort of, um, I say expectation setting, but these conversations with the decision makers in the college. So that yeah. also needs to happen so that there's a dialogue. So any, so this is my fourth college um, that I've, I've worked. And in my, my always sort of first step is to go into the environment and have conversations with either, again, my colleagues or the key decision makers and just have a conversation about, hey, here's how I think about diversity and inclusion. Here's how I'm framing it. So so frameworks are important to provide to people. Like, here's mm-hmm. how I'm framing it. And here is what my expectation is and my vision is for our college, that we are all collectively like working on this. And I'm hoping that you're a partner in this, right? And so having that dialogue to be able to hear that, yes, I'm on board or I don't know anything. So I may need some help, right? So, um, (laughs) So having those conversations like upfront allows you to then figure out what type of support is going to be needed and should be built in. So that's just my lessons learned over time that I've just found that trying to sort of swoop in and here's the plan doesn't always necessarily work that you have to get some of these structural pieces established first so that as you start rolling out efforts or start having these conversations, you have some built-in mechanisms that really help you to propel the work yeah. that is not solely just one person yelling from the mountaintops, do diversity, please, people. So yeah, yeah. So that's just my sort of uh, words of advice. So many. So <laughs> one, I just want to say we definitely have a lot of folks in organized veterinary medicine who also you know, view and listen to the show. These lessons apply to you too. Don't think it's just like academic (laughs) veterinary medicine. What Marco has said applies to organizations, any kind of organization. Um, And two, I think it is so critical, especially in this moment that we're in right now, where so many colleges, organizations, companies, you name it, is just like, oh my goodness, like there's a crisis. We got to do something. (laughs) 
what do we do? Just know that certainly I know I've made a lot of referrals to diversity DEI consultants. I've been consulting. I'm sure you've been, everybody's calling, right? But we can't save you. (laughs) Like you got to do this work. You do. Yeah. You got to do this work. Yeah. There's no magic wand. If there was, I would be marketing it and would be a billionaire by now if it was that easy. And and even to those who are engaged in the work, I think even for us, right, like as diversity practitioners, like we are always doing our work, right? So, because just the dynamics of identity and race and gender and intersectionality, all these concepts are often evolving as people are thinking differently about um, and what that looks like in our campuses and our workplaces are changing all the time. And so we too are always like, okay, let me, let me read up on what, you know, how people are engaging now or what some of the more contemporary approaches to this work may be. And so even if you had a diversity consultant five years ago, come in and say, do these things, Right out the window, right? (laughs) That's so five years ago. It's so five years ago. And so we have to really be reflective about that. Part of this work is the is change and yeah. what that looks like and so yes you are you are absolutely right like you have to like we have to like you have to we right. have to like do this work and always be working on it and that it's not easy and it's not always right the first time you do it either right so i've been right. really consulting people that you're going to try some things and and you may have to like follow up with people or rethink it or go back to the drawing board or what you do or try may not work. You may not see results, right? So that's why, again, this data is really important. Like you mm-hmm. may not see results. And so you have to change it to the beginning and really just ask. I think the sort of, I would say, bottom line key to thinking about, again, if you're again a new co- if you're a college that's just now trying to sort of do this work, is that being willing to be critical enough with yourself to say, okay, we've tried this we've done some assessment and we still don't have results. Something you're doing is not working, right? (laughs) And even as thorough and on the surface, it appears fair and objective, like even as much as you're doing those activities, like those activities that there is something embedded within them that is preventing you, right, from being able to make progress. And so I've started now asking and having, having senior leaders ask themselves, what is keeping us from making progress? Mm. Because if you are doing a practice that you feel like is working and you're not getting the results, something is keeping you from making <laughs> progress. And it may be you, right? So I think it's also like recognize that, like it could be you. It could be like you could be yeah. the person that is keeping progress from happening because either there's some perspective or some idea or some process that you're still uplifting and supporting and elevating that has some barriers into it right yeah. or something that something that, that that you're missing as the leader who makes the ultimate decision right and so sometimes it's us right so right. i even put yeah. myself in the same like sometimes it's me like sometimes i'm getting in my own way of being able for progress to happen and so yeah. i think we just have to ask ourselves that if we've if we're not seeing results what's keeping us from doing that and being honest that it could be us Yes. Well, and I mean, I think that, you know, the other piece that, 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 you know, you're, you're also suggesting is that when we talk about program development and implementation and all of that, you have to plan assessment right up front. Yeah, you do. (laughs) One of my biggest kind of pet peeves and people that know me well is like, I hate the actual term best practice. I hate it. Yeah. I hate it. I hate it because typically best practice, often we go to these conferences and everything and I'm like, okay, well, where's the lit review behind like this program that you created yeah. and how are you assessing it? And they're like, what? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, so oftentimes best practices is stuff we do. It's, it's just stuff we do. <laughs> like, it is. <laughs> right. And so oftentimes I tell people, I'm like, I don't look for best practices. I look for evidence-based practice, which means that there's an assessment model that is attached to this and that you implemented with the op- um, with the goal of assessing for whatever your defining success is, right? And right. so, you know, a lot of times folks don't, they miss that assessment piece. 
Um, and so they never get to the question of who is standing in the proper way of progress. <laughs> it's you. You didn't assess. It's you. Yeah, <laughs> it is. Yeah. And we off. I mean, that is that is sort of the epitome, sort of the core of bias. Like, like, like the core of bias is that it could be you. I mean, that's why we talk about it. That's why it's part of conversations. That's yeah. why the, 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 there's this whole body of literature and research that's around bias, because oftentimes we are moving in ways that again we are getting in our own way because of a number of right a number of reasons past experiences yeah. this has always worked this is what i know this is sort of my rule yeah. of thumb like it's like like you know this rule of thumb often yeah is is what's not allowing us to make progress and i think we have to be able to to do that so both i think to your point lisa about the assessment on the end but also our own assessment of the process, right? So whether you are a service provider and a veterinary practitioner, a veterinarian, and you're like, okay, I'm not getting the customers that that I'm hoping to embrace. Like I support diversity. I want, you know, I want more diverse. Like I want us to do this and we're just not doing it. Then you, again, you really have to be able to say that, okay, there's something in the process by which we look for clients or customers that is being missed. And clearly I'm in my own way. And so that's why, again, that's why it's important to, that's why people have consultants, right? Like they to kind of help and come in and not get you to the end result immediately, but really part of a good diversity consultant is helping you think about what are the steps and processes that are are really impeding your success and to help you sort of question that as opposed to here is the big solution with the bow. I mean, so just words of caution for those who are <laughs> working with consultants, just really making sure that they are consultants that are helping you to critique and analyze internally so that you get your practices right to have the end results. Absolutely. Anyway, my soapbox. So I'll, yeah, hey, I'll get off. This, I'll get off now. No, no. This show is all about soapboxing. This, okay. this show is all about soapboxing. But I mean, I think that it's just so important because I think that that folks, you know, certainly in this moment, there have been all of these like, we need a diversity consultant. And I'm like, okay, well, what do you want them to do? And they, yeah. you know, and and recognizing what that skill set is, they're gonna want your data. They're gonna want to see what you're working with. They're going to ask some really hard questions. Yeah. That's, that's our job. <laughs> right? It's not going to be comfortable. It might not even be fun. <laughs> like, but that's, but I mean, we're also, you know, one of the things that if people kind of don't necessarily tie to the work of diversity consultants or folks like, you know, in roles like this is that we're often the change agent that you're bringing in. Like our work is inherently about change. Right. Right. And so like, there's a whole body of knowledge just about change models. Right. And so, okay. So you got to the urgency part. Got it. (laughs) There's some educational catch up that has to be done. There's some assessment that has to be done. Then, you know, you get into that policy development and all of those kinds of things. And so it's, it's not a quick and easy kind of, okay, we checked it. Great. Right. Move on to the next project um, problem um, or project. And, you know, especially here in the U S you know, these issues around specifically around race and gender, but certainly all forms of diversity predates the, official organized founding of the U.S. Because we, I say that because we have to acknowledge that there were people here before that who were organized and doing their business. Yeah. (laughs) Minding their business. And so, you know, that we popped up on the scene. And so these issues predate the U.S. You cannot expect a consultant to come in and solve your problem. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. You know, and so, so I want to move on. So Marco, as the inaugural vice chancellor. Yeah. You know, what is Maine campus's role in supporting college level efforts in policy development and implementation? Because oftentimes, you know, folks come to me. Have you talked to your version of Marco, yeah. Dr. Marco Barker at your institution? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> who I know right, who is that? 
There's okay. an office. <laughs> That's the worst question. I you never. I never want to be in a meeting and someone's like, "Oh, there's a diversity office at the institution." Like that's just the worst thing any person who is who is in these roles, whether it's a new office or if you're an existing one, that's a little scary. But that is like the the words of death. Like we just <laughs> never want to hear that no one knows that an office exists. But it happens. It happens. Yes, it does. Yeah. So, you know, what's our what's our role? You know, certainly we have, you know, many or some, I would say, veterinary, I think, medical colleges um, or schools are part of land grant institutions. Um, Many are some many are connected to the ag work. Certainly we have ag, um, ag extension that is physically in a different part of the city, right? And so so we really are a main campus. I mean, so we have different campuses. I think whether you are physically located in proximity to the diversity office, or if you are sort of remote or also have sort of extension places that I think, you know, there are a number of, I think, of, 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 of responsibilities abilities that main campus or central diversity offices, I'll kind of frame it that way, mm-hmm. that, central, that central diversity offices have. Again, th- this is also very, it, it varies across institutional type, right, in size. And there are some offices that have more resources. So I want to go back to, you know, that I think being mindful that the investment is really important and what that looks like. Some general sort of ways that I've positioned our office and, and, and certainly how we support, I think one, and being able to provide a sense of framework and education to help build your capacity, right? So I sort of hold, again, so this is just Marco Barker, and sure. I suspect that my other diversity officer, senior diversity officer colleagues may um, think differently, but I think there's a real responsibility that I feel a responsibility that it's important that there's a sense of education and framing that should be coming from your central institutional office, right? So as a college, you should not sort of be looking around thinking, what is, you know, what is the institution's commitment to diversity and inclusion? I mean, if you are asking those questions and there's not clear evidence of that, you may be in, like, you may be in trouble, right? right? So there may be some need to sort of do that. And so I think central offices should be framing and, and providing some sort of education, right? So for example, when I arrived at the institution, part of my role was created it was because there was no sort of central messaging, central support as it pertains to diversity and inclusion. And so one of the first things that I that I did is that um, we formed a council so that there were um, individuals from all the respective colleges and administrative units. And every member of that council, I've made sure had two texts. So they got books and they got articles from me to really help give them some information and knowledge so that they can begin to do this work on their own and not feel like they were going into it unaware um, or not going or, or going into mm-hmm. this work not supported. So I think this this sort of sense of support for different colleges, I mean, I think for different institutions, it could look different, right? So if, if there may be some institutions that provide conferences for employees, and that's a way to sort of help build capacity. But I think this idea around building capacity really should be coming from a central office. I think also being able to um, guide and consult a college through their own process. So mm-hmm. I'm very clear with my colleagues here. You know, like I don't, I don't hold hands, right? And so it's like you're doing diversity work. Like you have to do, like you have to do your own work. And however, I'm going to make sure that you have the information, the education, um, to also guide you along the way. So again, I'm not like I'm not coming to your college. I'm not sitting down and going through a a a, a future planning process with you. Like I just don't have the capacity right to do right. that and, and, and neither do my colleagues. However, the central office should be available that as you face hiccups or as you are reaching milestones to be able to consult with you to say, okay, like this looks really solid. Like this looks really good. And so because part of what we're able to see from a central sort of central office is to be able to see how this is playing out in different ways. And so we can yeah. offer feedback of what that looks like. But also, I think we have we have a responsibility to make sure that colleges, that people doing this work in colleges are getting connected. Right. So, again, we have a council. We also create opportunities for cross dialogue so that individuals working on strategic plans are talking to each other. And so we facilitate that so that 
you don't have to be like, well, is there another college doing this work? Like, where are they? You know, and, and sort of do guesswork that we we have a sense of who's doing this work to be able to say, you know what, you should really talk with the College of Business because they actually had a similar situation, while not exactly like yours, that may be similar, right? Mm-hmm. Or there may be some aspects of their work that's really important. I think probably like the the last piece I would say, and kind of thinking through what I think has been the most successful or most helpful as an office here is that, um, again, being able, and this goes back to this framework, but being able to provide a number of examples and frameworks for people like starting this work. So when I arrived again, my um, expectation was that everyone's doing a diversity strategy. Like it doesn't have to be necessarily a plan. I think it should be woven into your existing plans, which is a whole nother, a whole nother talk show. But I think that everyone needs to be thinking about developing and actually, and, and actually doing it. So actually developing a diversity strategy. Here are some examples from other institutions, other departments that are like yours that can be helpful to you, right? So again, this sort of so this is sort of a, an emergence or or a, a intersection of both the resources, framing, sharing models that this should be some of the work being done at the at the central office, and so. Those are just some ways that I hope yeah. that colleges, again, are uh, really being able to, to to get connected and certainly always being available to, again, to to answer those questions, I think is really key. And so hopefully, again, people are getting that support from their central um, offices. Fantastic. Yeah. I also want to shout out that the live stream is open. The chat is open in case there are any questions. But I also know that I, I know my people, I know my audience, they're going to want to know what those books are that you gave your people. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know um, I think I have, I should, I have them somewhere. Okay. So, you know, we are back and forth between, I do some, you know, sometime in the office and sometime at home. And so I oh, have yeah. a, a books all over oh, yeah, the place. Yeah. But one of those books is Strategic Diversity Leadership by Damon A. Williams, oh, yeah. which has been a really great resource in terms of thinking about how you organize the work and what that looks like. The other resource that I don't have, uh, it must be, it, oh, it is at home because I was, I, was, I was working on something. <laughs> so the other book is, I think it's um, Diversity's Promise, Making It Work mm, by Daryl yeah, Smith. Yeah. Yeah. And so that is actually the framework that we have adopted and are using at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. And so, and so every single member of the council has a copy of those books. Um, some of them have, have gone forward and, and they've gotten copies for their people in their um, respective college or department or, or committee. And so, so those are, so those are t- sort of the, the two primary books Great. that, yeah, people are using. And so um, they're really helpful guys. They're very accessible. There's a number of models. Again, I'm a really yeah. visual person. And so, yeah. yes, absolutely. Um, Daryl Smith and Damian Williams, really yeah. great, at least first go-tos as you're thinking about doing this. Absolutely. And I, I mean, I'm a big fan of Damon's work. I met him very, yeah. very, very early in my career at Encore. Um, he yes. really is one of the foremost authorities on chief diversity officers in higher ed, right? And, yes. and really kind of kind of what that should look like, kind of on that cutting edge of, of the research around CDO work. Yep, yeah, pick absolutely. Up, He's pick, great. Pick it up. Pick it up, read everything you've written. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, and be, you know, and really, uh, I think one of the other, I think, responsibilities of central offices is that really helping people to be students of the work. I mean, yeah. this, um, it is the work that Lisa is doing, the work that I am doing is not just happenstance. Like, we don't dream about, you know, approaches in our, you know, in our sleep and just of arrive and try and do this right i mean it is really about being students of the work not only like looking at you know these you know best practices or promising practice like not only like looking at it on the surface but also really being able to critique and see what about the practices may be producing these outcomes so um so i'm I'm a huge proponent that people need to be, and 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 my folks know when I go into meetings, I'm I'm sort of asking like, you know, who's read? Like, it's who's who's done the readings, people? Who's done the readings so that we can have a much more informed conversation? 
so that you again that you are not sort of just throwing darts in the air i mean yeah. i think that i think trial and error ha- has its place i think innovation is really important i think trying and making mistakes is, is definitely okay if they're informed right so you've mm. done some reading you've 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 learned a bit more about how to approach this work in a way that's organized and so so these books are you know they're both educational but they yeah. really are meant to be informative to your actual process yeah. gotta do your reading people yeah, I mean, you know, that trial and error thing, you know, well, I mean, you're a scientist, I'm a scientist. It's yeah. called experimentation. And you don't just, <laughs> there's dart throwing and then there's experimentation. <laughs> That's right. That is absolutely, yes. Right? And so, you know, pick your poison. But yeah, I love the fact that you kind of go in. Okay, class is in session. Who did the homework? I do. They, <laughs> yeah, yeah, my, you know, um, People, uh, they appreciate our meetings, but they know like, oh my goodness, I mean, and so we have, now we have some council members who, who actually bring their books <laughs> to our meeting because I may reference it. And so they've been really great students in that regard. But yeah, I am, a, but no, you're absolutely right, Lisa, that, you know, as we think about as scientists, as people, so again, whether you are in a college setting in terms of academia or you've gone through yeah. your program that what you were taught was about discovery and yeah. again and experimentation and what that looks like and being and being a scientist and so diversity work is really no different i mean it is it, it is the same level of understanding the problem the issue studying the issue looking at different hypotheses thinking about what are the different treatments or or applications and then figuring out a way to apply them and then thinking about how they're impacting different communities right so this is all i mean this is this is what higher education teaches us right (laughs) as both students and as both scholars and professors and scientists and it is it is no different it is no different and i think that that's (laughs) something that people kind of gloss over because it is heart and head work, but they forget the head part, right? And they forget the head part. They focus kind of on that that heart part, the morality, the feel good, it's the right thing to do, all of those kinds of things. But, you know, one of the things that I have known for in my rantings is please know that this is scholarly work. Yes. And, and it's interdisciplinary scholarly work. And so, yep. you know, the types of readings that that, you know, diversity folks do is just it's across the board. <laughs> we read a lot. <laughs> Harvard Business Review, Journal for Diversity. Yeah, I mean, it is a range a lot, right? of fields. Yes. Yes, yes. So I got a couple last questions. For Sorry, you. yes, yes. No, don't apologize. This has been a fascinating conversation. So for educational organizations, I'm going to put myself in that center myself here for a moment. For folks like me who, you know, live inside of educational organizations where these colleges your colleges are members of groups like mine. What kinds of things can I do and what kinds of things can I recommend to my member institutions to kind of help them on their journeys? Yeah, you know, I think that organizations like AAVMC and certainly others are really primed and positioned to one, help people think about, again, think about data and think about areas of assessment, right? So one of the questions that I've been getting a lot with colleges is around, okay, like this equity thing, we've been hearing about this and we want to be a more equitable place, right? Where do we start? And again, data, data, data. But even with the data, some people don't know what data you should be examining, right? And so I think education associations, because of where you where you sit, sort of see how this plays out in terms of policy. And so I think being able to inform colleges around Here are areas that if you're doing diversity work and you want to look at equity, here are areas that you should be exploring, right? Because again, when you're in the fishbowl, you don't always see the world around you. And so I think the associations are are really able to do that. So again, everything from graduation to hiring, that is not just hiring, but it's also applications. Who's applying? Who was selected? Do you have this data, right? Um, So I think that's one area. I think also getting back to sort of the practices, I think... Right. So it's only being careful not to say here is a fix it all for you, like in terms of practices. But I think being able to say here are some of your colleagues around the world, around the nation that are doing amazing work and have seen results. And so let me identify who these individuals are. Mm -hmm. And then also I think associations are also well positioned to then create a space 
so that you can connect with them, right? So I think, yeah, I certainly think you're doing that through this podcast. I think certainly traditionally conferences um, allow for some of that. And so, so I think that's a huge responsibility that associations can definitely do. Um, the other one, which is, uh, and I think Lisa, like, I think you and I have sort of discussed this before too, is with the sort of policy piece or the setting the expectation, right? So yeah. many associations are the accrediting body or have some role with accreditation um, and what that looks like for colleges. And I think that's a real place to just clearly and really unapologetically say, here's the expectation. Like this is just the expectation is that you are practicing inclusive excellence in your in your colleges in this way, right? And to be able yeah. to provide this framework and certainly even my work in working with veterinary um, schools and colleges is, is I always go to your association <laughs> and really see how's yeah. the association talking about this and what is the association's expectation of colleges so that when I'm consulting with colleges, to, you know, to say, yeah. well, here's what, here's what your association is expecting of you. So let's think about how do you still be able to do this? How do you bring in the institution, institutional goals around diversity and inclusion? You should really think about and help inform how you're going to approach it. So I think associations have a real, a real, a real responsibility around that. I think outside of that, I would just say that the, the sort, of, sort of related to that, I think that there's an opportunity as well in terms of the expectation setting with the leadership, right? So mm-hmm. many associations, you know, the deans or someone, um, there's some sort of gathering of the the main people in charge, right, who sort of come together to discuss what are the emerging issues, what are the new things on the horizon. And I think that sometimes, right, that there is an opportunity missed with getting leaders up to speed. And so that work ends up falling on Mm -hmm. the diversity professional within the college, right, to, to try and do that. Or again, there are some deans who are who do both have the heart and head in this? Yeah. I'm, I'm going to steal that, Lisa. I'm going to borrow that for a little <laughs> while. That um, that saying, but who already have that in them, and they are really doing this work. There are others who really want to be engaged, but just maybe having other distractions or other competing priorities, right? And and we know that when there are competing priorities, diversity and inclusion tends to be tends to be the one that is on the bottom of the list. <laughs> and so, I think that associations can really help um, reframe for leaders that diversity and inclusion or inclusive excellence is a leading priority. And so I think, again, just looking across a different types of, of, of association that I think sometimes that is an area not always emphasized. And so I think that there is ways that that can be made a priority. Yeah, those are, so those are sort of my initial thoughts, again, yeah, where sure. I think that uh, because of seeing the full spectrum of the field and what's happening across the U.S. again, or maybe it's an international um, association across the globe, that I think those are at least some of the key ways, you know, in addition to, which is, again, is an assumption, but that there, again, is a clear commitment of the association to the work, right? So that sometimes people because this work is, it is changed. It's sometimes it is difficult. There is resistance like in this work sometimes. And it's helpful to know that the association has nationally spoken on this particular issue, sometimes gives colleges the, the freedom, the permission, and the courage to be yeah. able to tackle the same issue. Oh, thank you so much. Such good stuff. So I do have a question from the chat. Um, And that question is, we talk a bit about how new grads or students can kind of further this work. Um, So that's both within the college, but also um, this person is also asking, you know, if you have any advice for, you know, on that job hunt. And we have done some of those uh, podcasts in in the past. I definitely will link to that separately. But, you know, what is what role for new grads, for alums, for students, you know, who are interested in this work? to continue doing the work, but also to, you know, what's their role? Yeah, that's really, that's really important question. So I think part of this is, and I often advise graduates and thinking about like where you're going to work and being able to have conversations with either potential employers or your employers around why this work is important to you and to be 
ask their questions about how they see this work as important to them, right? And so, mm-hmm. so you'll find a number of people, right? So you'll find some responses that are, wow, you know, we really haven't thought about it. Right? And so, it, so that provides a really great opportunity for a recent grad who's going into the workplace in terms of being able to help shape what that could look like for that yeah. particular organization. In other cases, you may, again, you may find people who say, oh, we actually have a, a, a real commitment to this and we have different committees, right? And so that, again, provides a space where it will identify to you how that can be really a place that, that certainly you fit in. I think for those who say we haven't really thought about it, that's not a major concern for us right now. Flag goes up. And I think that in those spaces, you then have to decide, right? So I'm, I'm always very careful about helping people think about where you put your energies. And so mm-hmm. really decide that, that if this is a if this is an area where you can put your energies outside of that, there are absolutely other organizations and associations that I hope mm-hmm. that as a professional that I think that you can contribute to. Right. So there there are veterinary conferences again yeah. that Lisa and I attended. And so, you know, developing proposals and finding these other ways in the profession, if your particular job is not necessarily engaged in this work, that you can contribute your talents and your interests and your passion for being able to do this. Oh, great advice. Any advice um, before we leave this question for students on campus? Because a lot of times when they don't have people like you and I, oftentimes colleges and universities are like, okay, well, that student organization will go just do that program. That's not their job. (laughs) I mean, they can do it, (laughs) but not their job. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So two primary, I think I would um, sort of advise. So one is, which is really an emerging trend that's happening that I really appreciate, is that students are asking to be part of leadership conversations. So I think that identifying if there is a particular cause or issue or matter that's of, of, of importance to you and being able to schedule a meeting with the decision makers to be able to say, I want to be a part of the decision making and, and really play a role in this, right? And so, because yes, because you may find that there are not already places created, um, created yeah. for you to be able to engage and to uh, and be part of sort of elevating this work. And so, you may have to say, "Hey, there's some existing structures," and I think it's important for there to be a student voice in this existing structure and really advocating for that. I mean, I think I have seen a level of student advocacy that I've not seen before, which is great and really helping again, yeah. helping me and helping other leaders think about that and and other processes that we've not always included students just because it's kind of the way that we've always done things, that there are probably quite a few places that student voices could really be um, important yeah. and also part of finding solutions and addressing these issues. And so I would say really think about so that you don't get pulled in so many different directions, like really think about if there's something in particular, something very specific that's of importance to you. And then being able to say that I would like to be engaged in that particular way outside of, yes, like there, 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 there mm-hmm. may already be things happening on at the institution where you can just easily get plugged in. But if there is not, I think being able to, yes, advocate um, to have some sort of participation that doesn't necessarily mean starting, starting a club or doing right, it right. on your own, right. <laughs> um, because, there, because there is a, 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 a huge amount of labor um, involved in that. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to forego my last question because we do have one more question. Oh, OK. And I Absolutely. Know that and I'll answer it really you, quickly. Yes, yes. I, I got to let you go, Mr. Vice, Dr. Vice Chancellor. So the last <laughs> question is, how can a college without a budget to support the DEI position, how can they incorporate some of this important work, you know, without any resources? <laughs> yeah, I, you know. Yes, I've been there. So, yeah, I know. I know. Like, how do we do? Like, how do we do? Like, with no budget. So, I think there are some structural and processes. And so, so, so there's some strategies that I think you can implore like, if you don't have the, the resources, right? So when I talked about creating some sort of infrastructure to support the work, that can absolutely be done. It does call for some human capital. So there has to be mm-hmm. a commitment that if we can't put in financial resources that we are able to put in human capital or, or, or human resources in terms of, okay, we're going to create time for people to be able to do this. So that sort of is one way um, to be able to do it. I think once you have some structures in place, I think you can then get a little creative, right? So I talked about looking at equity and doing assessments and sort of doing an audit of your practices that can be done by a committee, right? So you can form a committee to be able to do some of that work and certainly looking at that. I think another area, um, if you, again, not having the budget is to be able to create some localized discussions and conversations 
Um, right. So, so again, so you may not have the budget to bring in people, but nothing circumvents you from being able to use resident experts, whether it's in your college or even outside of the college. Right. So there, so there may be faculty or administrators in other parts of the institution that have expertise in this that can really help guide and get your college thinking about this work. So, yeah, so there absolutely, I think, are some approaches that can be taken that begins to at least move um, the needle um, a bit in terms of your college. Yeah, if you don't have the resources. Yeah, I, I completely recognize that, that, that that's a real reality for people. Another strategy too is getting creative with faculty buyouts, right? So what could it look like to have a faculty member to do halftime? I'm, 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 mm. I'm completely opposed, right? Sort of adding it on to somebody's workload, which, which typically yeah. happens, but really saying, okay, we have the internal capacity to buy out a halftime person, either faculty or staff, a halftime person to help us at least do these three areas of diversity and inclusion work. And yeah. so that's where we want to start. So I think there are some shifting of resources, whether financial or, or human capital, that I think could allow you to make some progress. All right. Wonderful. Thank yeah. you so much for indulging that last question. Again, thank you so much, Marco, for um, no, this is great. this discussion. It's such a really good, rich conversation. So thank you so much for taking this hour with me. So this has been another episode of AVMC's Diversity and Inclusion on Air. Again, Dr. Marco Barker at University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Thank you so much for being on the show. Be thank sure you. to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. Also like us on Facebook and and of course, we have diversity, AAVMC's Diversity Community Reads. We are currently reading Jay Dalmage's Academic Ableism and doing online conversations. Really just such a, an amazing book. So be sure to find us on Facebook and sign up for that program as well. Thanks for listening and we will see you next time. Thank you. Thank you.